E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoy today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Anne Aviles. Dr. Aviles is an Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Sciences from the University of Delaware's College of Education and Human Development. Her work focuses on the developmental trajectories, academic, and life skills of youth of color experiencing homelessness or housing instability. Dr. Aviles' work underscores equity and access for all marginalized populations, including Black and Latinx individuals, women, individuals experiencing poverty and homelessness, and individuals grappling with mental illness, violence, and trauma. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about the intersection of housing instability and education and what that means for Delaware's youth. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Aviles. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with some basics. You use the term housing instability. What does that mean and how does it relate to other terms that are used in policy conversations, such as homelessness? In other words, who and what are we talking about when we talk about housing instability? Yeah, that's a great question to start with because that is the distinction I try to make in my work. Um, so I think homelessness as a general term, people tend to, and when I say people, kind of just the larger um, perception, general perception is people living on the streets and or those living in shelters, which definitely constitute a person experiencing housing instability um, and or homelessness. The reason I like, um, or I should say prefer the term housing instability is because it provides more comprehensive and nuanced understanding of the housing instability people experience. So for example, most of the work that I have done previously has um, focused on youth, as you said in the outset. And so many times young people, in particular unaccompanied youth, so those are youth not in the care of a parent or guardian, end up um, staying from house to house. So let's say, um, for example, many times youth that identify as LGBTQ are um, kicked out of their homes, right? Because they, they come out and they get kicked out. And so they may go stay with a friend for a little while. Um, maybe, you know, a friend's family allows them to, you know, spend the night a few nights and then they may end up at a cousin's house or an auntie's house or grandmother's house. And so technically they, they are housed, right? And I'm saying housed in quotations. They do have a place to stay. It is not stable and it is not consistent. And so that to me is a better understanding and a better description of young people and or just individuals or families that experience housing instability because according to, and I'll get into this, I'm probably jumping ahead, according to McKinney-Dinto, right, the policy that guarantees students and families the right to an education, anyone that lacks a fixed regular nighttime residence is considered housing unstable versus like the HUD definition that focuses more on 
homelessness in a more traditional sense. So those that are living in the street and or living in shelters. So that's the distinction. Some people may say it's minor. I believe it's significant, especially when we're talking about people's lived experiences, because not knowing where you're going to sleep um, every day, that is a stressor, right? Um, young people and or families trying to figure out not only their meals for the day, maybe their school, their work, but it's also where am I going to sleep tonight? And that constant worry of where will I sleep definitely has a negative impact, right, on people's overall well-being and mental health. That's really helpful. And I think that really enforces the importance of language uh, when we're talking uh, about policy and policy solutions for, for different member community. So let's talk about what housing instability means in our own communities. What is the state of this issue for Delaware youth? Absolutely. So as, um, so let, let me take a quick step back. So I come out of Chicago, Illinois, where, where is, um, excuse me, which is where I have done the majority of my work. I came to Delaware in 2016 um, and quickly learned that there was not much being done in terms of scholarship, I will say. There's always a lot being done on the ground, so I don't want to discount at all the efforts of, you know, the many organizations across the city of Delaware that are working to address, you know, housing instability and homelessness. Um, however, I didn't find any research on like, well, how many young people are experiencing housing instability or homelessness, you know, in the state? So I actually paired up with um, a couple faculty members from the University of Delaware who have one, the expertise in quantitative analysis, which is definitely not my area. Um, and then also learning that the university through the Center for Drug and Health Studies administers many school-based assessments. One of them, which is the YRBS, um, which is the Youth Risk Behavioral Survey. So what we learned is that about um, for every 30 students, right? So I would say that's about a classroom. There is at least one young person, right? Who is experiencing housing instability in the state of Delaware. What we also found was um, that housing instability is pretty constant across the three counties of Delaware, um, Kent, Sussex, Sussex, and Newcastle County. Um, Newcastle County is the more urban of the three counties, but we found that rural homelessness is just as pervasive as urban homelessness. And so for me, that was also very interesting, as I said, coming from um, the Chicago space, most of my work has focused on urban youth, right? So youth in, in cities and municipalities. Um, we also found similar to national data for Delaware, um, there is an overrepresentation of black and brown students within the students that experience housing instability. If you are a black student in Delaware, you are 1.86 times more likely to experience homelessness. And if you're a Latino student, you are 1.8 nine times more likely to experience homelessness. Um, so we definitely see some, um, I'll say some differences right along the lines of race um, and ethnicity. And about 3% 
3.6% of youth um, across the state experienced housing instability, which like I said, was about one in 30. Um, so the way I like to think about it is that it's very likely if you are a teacher um, in a Delaware school and you have about 30 students, which is most classes, I would say range, you know, between 25 and 30 students, it's very likely that at least one of your students ex is experiencing some kind of housing instability. It's a really powerful uh, study that you conducted with these uh, collaborators from the university. And I think it's really helpful to think about that in terms of what it's like as a teacher, right? The, the probability is that you are interacting with students that have housing instability and that those are across, you know, different geographic areas, different racial and demographic categories. So that's really important for us to keep in mind. Um, let's connect that back to education. So what are, what are some of the key challenges that result, result from experiencing housing instability? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I do want to point out before we um, go to that next point, so I don't lose it, is the YRBS study is conducted um, for most states, they focus on high school. Um, there is a middle school and a high school. And so we looked at both middle school and high school, and we were able to do that again, because Delaware is one of the few states to collect housing status data on middle school students. So I think that is important. It's also to me, um, some advocacy around including a uh, questions on housing instability in middle school, because I think the assumption is that middle schoolers don't have these experiences and our data shows that they do. Um, also, I want to point out in terms of those age slash grade levels, and this to me is important to your point around um, teachers and education, because we want to think about students' developmental tra trajectories and the ways in which schools often right, serve to facilitate a positive development for young people. And what we found, again, similar to national data, is that high school students are more likely to experience housing instability. Um, so again, um, previous work I've done has really focused on schools as sites of stability and care, right? And so because school is compulsory in our nation, um, students have to, right, interact with the school space. And so how can we better prepare teachers, right, um, principals, counselors, you know, anyone really in a school setting to be aware of the instability and the negative impact. Um, so that that really goes, I think, into the question you just asked. So sorry, that was kind of a little bit of a runaround, but I just wanted to make sure I highlighted that. Um, what, what we find um, the biggest concern uh, is the instability. Um, what we know about children and development is that they need consistency and stability in order to really thrive. And so when young people lack that consistency and stability, um, it becomes very difficult for them to learn. And really for any of us, I think COVID has shown, right, how much many of us love our routine as mundane as it feels. So many of us are missing like going into the office and just the basic routine that we had. And it has thrown many of us off off in terms of our own productivity, our ability to stay focused, right? Our ability to um, engage in really meaningful ways. And so we can, um, we've been seeing that for young people, right? Who consistently experience housing instability. 
Um, many youth talk about, or I'll, I'll say students, right, K through 12 students, say that um, it has a negative impact on their emotional and mental health. It um, disrupts, right, their ability to feel safe because, again, they don't know once they leave the school building, um, will they eat? Will they have a place to sleep? Um, many times um, it is hard for them to concentrate and to get their work done, right? If you are concerned about where you're going to sleep this evening or whether or not you're going to have a meal, um, the math lesson or that reading lesson becomes really difficult to engage. Um, they also um, experience definitely higher levels of stress, again, all related to their housing instability. Um, if you add on to that, right, young people who are in homes where there may be violence also occurring, which for many young people, they leave their home, right, they run away because of um, abuse or neglect. So there's, um, which is a multi-layered because especially for the older students, if they have younger siblings, many of them may feel a lot of guilt because they're, then they leave their younger siblings knowing that they are still having to endure this abuse and neglect, which is why many times young people even stay. Um, so I just wanna, I guess, highlight that last point because to me, it really speaks to the resilience and care that young people demonstrate despite their situations, right? I think oftentimes, um, adults and uh, children, not as much, but definitely adults are um, blamed for their situation, right? And many times it is these larger structural forces, right? Lack of a housing wage, right? Lack of opportunity, um, poor education, right? These are kind of the foundations <laughs> that then lead people to end up homeless. Um, there was a study done out of Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago, I wanna say 2018. And what they found is that one of the, the most significant predictors of adult homelessness is actually youth homelessness, right? So for me, this is even more important why we should be creating more awareness, um, ensuring that young people, right, have stability, have access to education so that they can then hopefully, right, um, go on to college or a trade, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but so that they become stable adults, right? If they're unstable in their youth, it is very likely that they will be unstable in terms of the housing situation. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about people's mental stability. I'm talking about their actual stability around housing. Um, the other, I guess one other um, area that I want to make sure I highlight is the issue of transportation. That is um, in Chicago, and I know here in Delaware, that is almost always the largest cost to the school system, right? Ensuring that young people can get to and from school. Um, and we find, and what I've heard, let me say, I haven't um, seen data on this. As I said, there isn't a whole lot of research happening around um, students in particular that experience housing instability. But transportation costs are really expensive, especially for the more rural areas, right? There isn't an infrastructure of public transportation. So either you're walking or you're just not going to school if the school does not provide some sort of transportation, which technically they should under the McKinney-Vento Act. Wow. So I'm, I'm reflecting on all that you've covered here, and I'm thinking about both the scope of the issues in Delaware and, of course, beyond, um, and the consequentiality of 
of those challenges to their their short term for learning, but their longer term for you know well being as an adult. So as we think about the work of the great folks in our education system, our teachers, our leaders, our policymakers, um, what are the kinds of things that research says can, can help those students or are needed to support them? So what are the kinds of things that we know and how can we put them into place as a system to make sure those students are successful? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so First, I know I've mentioned now McKinney-Vento a couple times, so I'll start there, right? That um, McKinney-Vento is a, it is the first and only actually comprehensive policy to address the issue of homelessness in our nation. It has many components to it, so it addresses all the um, populations, right, that experience homelessness, including veterans, older adults, families, children, you know, all that stuff. McKinney-Vento was implemented in 1987. Um, I started my doctoral program early mid 2000s. Um, many of the teachers that I was in my coursework with were not aware of McKinney-Vento. Um, when I came to Delaware, I actually, uh, one of your colleagues in, in the School of Ed invited me into her urban education class because she was not aware of McKinney-Vento and none of her students had been aware. Um, so this is to me, um, step one is just, is people should know in particular, anyone who is in the field of education should know McKinney-Vento. Um, I liken it to the IDEA, right? The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. That is a requirement in all schools of education, right? Every teacher, principal, school counselor, whoever it is, they need to leave that program knowing about IDEA. Um, I think our, where we have right, some power in terms of policy in schools of education, colleges of education is to say McKinney-Vento must be a part of all curricula, right? That any person who is gonna enter a school building should know about McKinney-Vento. It's really important that we just start there, right? And so um, McKinney-Vento says every school and or district, depending on the size, right? So in Chicago, because we are such a large district, every school has a liaison. The responsibility of the liaison is to identify students experiencing homelessness and then to ensure that their educational needs are met. And that includes transportation, it includes um, school fee waivers, it includes um, some places if they have uniforms that the um, school provides them with two or three uniforms, right? So that they um, that burden doesn't then fall onto the family, right? Who is already in a difficult economic situation. Um, it basically says that, again, similar to IDEA, that all unhoused young people should have access to the same comparable free education as their housed counterparts, right? So there um, are mechanisms in place. However, there isn't a lot of accountability. Um, here in Delaware, like many smaller um, educational spaces, most times there is a liaison for each district. So there isn't a liaison in every school, right? But there is a liaison that is in every district. And I know here in Delaware, some districts are in our school of one. Um, so it just depends, right? I think also there's always, and I, I, this is the issue that is 
The most contested, of course, is funding, right? And so how do schools um, ensure that they are implementing McKinney-Vento if they don't have the funding to do it, right? As I said, transportation is one of the largest costs to the school districts and oftentimes, um, so McKinney-Vento says that you have the right to stay in your school of origin. So school of origin is the school that you were attending prior to, right, your housing instability. So again, that um, consistency and stability is important because many times kids, um, because of the moving around, right, staying with friends, relatives who, you know, shelters, they constantly then change schools, right? Home and schools are the two, especially for young people, those are the two primary contexts in which young people develop. So when home becomes unstable, schools become that anchor of stability for that young person. And so that was one of the um, policy, right, um, approaches was to say like, okay, well, because we know home life is not stable, let's make sure that these young people at least have consistent stability in their schools. Um, so I think people need to know that in order to then provide that stability. I think sometimes um, because of uh, deficit narratives around poor people, and in particular um, deficit narratives around black and brown poor people, the assumption is that the parents don't care, look at how they just you know, let this kid come to school. Um, they're not getting their homework done, right? And the the parent and or parents, right, are oftentimes struggling just to make ends meet. So they are trying to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. They're trying to figure out, you know, have they overstayed their welcome at their sister's house or at their cousin's house or at their mom's house, right? Again, that stress and worry. Um, they are trying to figure out, do they have enough gas if they even have a vehicle to get them through the week to make sure they get, get to work and get their kids to school. Um, so there's all these external factors that are happening that from the outside, right? Especially for most um, institutions of education, right, the norms are very much white middle class. And so from a white middle class lens, it's easy to say, these are bad parents, they don't care, right? But if we take, just shift that lens a little bit to say like, okay, let's understand these larger systems and structures of inequity, right? Um, economic inequity, racial, um, gender, right? Many times it is it is single black and brown women um, that are enduring these experiences and really they're doing a great job <laughs> considering how little they have to work with, right? And so I think if schools had those deeper nuanced understandings, then I think they would, I would hope, <laughs> right? That they would um, be more I guess, have a more complex than approach to say, hey, um, one great solution people have developed is, and I know it's hard right now in COVID, but uh, schools is communities, right? So that schools really become these anchors in the community that they don't only provide the, the traditional curriculum, but then they have other um, co-curricular activities that also enhance, right, the learning of young people, but also support the needs of their families. Um, so let me say this, because I know especially for my teachers out there, um, we are burdened with so much. And so I'm not trying to add to the plate. 
these, these to me are community collaborations, right? That the schools can collaborate with existing community organizations and say, hey, we know you provide this service come to our school and provide this service, right? We're just gonna create some space. Um, it, it isn't um, that the teacher should take on more, right? I think the other piece is the liaisons. Um, there is no funding for liaisons, right? It is an additional responsibility without additional time or pay. Um, that was one of the major findings from the research I conducted in Chicago is you had someone who was the senior counselor and she was the attendance coordinator and the homeless liaison, right? Um, so there isn't a lot of structure for the homeless liaison in terms of like clear roles and responsibilities. And there also is not uh, any compensation, time or financial, right, to make sure you get this work done. Um, so to me, right, when I think about systems, that is an indicator that this is not either well understood and or valued by the school, right? Because we, we know what's valued based on the funding, right, and the attention it gets another solution that maybe isn't specific to the school setting, but just the larger um, landscape of how do we support in particular unaccompanied young people, right, is by, is by providing that housing. And so one way is understanding that Delaware currently doesn't have any youth shelters. And so we should be as a state thinking about how can we bring um, housing that will specifically address youth homelessness. I know that the new shelter that was formerly the Sheraton Hotel, right, that's been um, in the news quite a bit. Um, I was told that one, I, one, not idea, but a conversation that is currently happening is having uh, a floor or a wing that is designated specifically for youth. Um, again, because I think I shared this earlier, a lot of the youth identify as LGBTQ. And so being able to provide that safety and stability, but then also provide services and programming to support them right to be healthy adults, um, because we know, like I said earlier, that the one of the largest indicators of adult homelessness is youth homelessness. And so I think by providing that stability early on, hopefully we can disrupt right the pipeline of youth to adult homelessness. Thank you for those really specific and actionable solutions. I think that's really helpful to our audience who I know are working to better meet the needs of these youth. With my last question, I want to ask us to take a step back and think about the larger policy context in which these issues are situated. Can you share with us, as we wrap up, some of those larger policy challenges that make it difficult to meet the needs of these students? So I think that um, philosophically, right, um, in terms of thinking about policy, we really do need to reckon with um, the legacy and history of race and racism in our country, and also with this very neoliberal capitalist focused, um, I guess, sea change that has hit education over the last decade, right? Um, much of the 
rhetoric and narrative around education has become, you know, ultra test focused, very outcomes based. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have accountability, but we're, again, because we are laser focused on these quantitative measures, we are missing all the nuance of holding young people who are experiencing um, economic violence, right, social violence, right, we won't even get into, especially here in Delaware, the gun violence in Wilmington, and really this last month and a half, we've seen a spike in gun violence across the entire state. Um, they're, they're being held to the same standard as white middle class, um, stably housed, two parents, right, who, for some of us, you know, us as faculty included, like, COVID fortunately has not had an extreme or significant impact on our, our economic right well-being. Um, so we are holding students accountable who have very different situations, who have very different supports. Um, the other piece, um, as I, I started off by saying, is, is the racial um, challenges, the racial inequities. The fact that um, overwhelmingly it is black and brown students that are experiencing homelessness and housing instability. Um, I wanna say the, it was a 2018 report that came out um, and the finding around homelessness was um, that uh, black population is way overrepresented. Uh, black population in the US is about 13% of the entire population. Blacks are 26% of, of those living in poverty and about 40% of those that are experiencing homelessness, right? So that is a significant disproportionate representation of Black people, you know, within the um, homeless population. For Latinos, it's very tricky um, because of, of issues of immigration status and citizenship. Um, the literature actually refers to Latinos as the quote unquote hidden um, population because oftentimes, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Latino populations aren't going to the shelters or other places, right, because of their citizenship status. So they're staying under the radar. Um, so I think that as a, as a school system, as a governmental system, as a society, um, and I, I wrote about this um, as part of my dissertation, which um, turned into a book in 2015, is we have to recognize that the racial hierarchy, right, the characteristics that are attributed to various racial groups, um, and, and that really that race class, right? So people assume if you are a person of color that you, um, uh, there's more assumption about like, do you belong in particular spaces? Um, whereas if you are a white person that has experienced poverty, if you show up to the space, you know, nicely dressed, no one's questioning, like, how did they get here, right? Whereas um, if you are black or brown, um, there, there might be some kind of like, mm, how to, like, it must be affirmative action, right? There's a lot of assumptions around you being in that space. So I think that we as teachers, right, as educators need to recognize the racial bias um, that we've all been, you know, kind of indoctrinated into in, in our society that we all have bought into to some degree. And we have to start to unpack that and resist that so that we can really 
one, support young people, um, and two, hopefully change those relationships and those um, social dynamics so that we aren't questioning why certain people are in certain spaces. Um, we aren't making negative assumptions, right, about families um, who experience poverty, you know, assuming that they must be on drugs or they probably, you know, and so if they could just clean up their act, if they could just figure out how to work harder, right, if you look at a lot of the um, services or programming, it's all about like teaching them how to basically be more white middle class rather than let's look at the system. The fact that I believe in Delaware, the minimum wage is less than $9. Um, research shows, right, the National Low Income Housing Coalition says the housing wage in Delaware is $22 an hour, which means if you want to, if you are to afford a one to two bedroom apartment in the state of Delaware and not spend more than 30% of your income, right, which is the federal designation on your housing, you need to be making $22 an hour. Well, if you are making $9 an hour and you add children into the mix, no matter how many hours you work, you're not going to be able to afford that housing. Um, and not to mention that there is not enough affordable housing for those that actually need it. So in our nation, I want to say we have a shortage of about 7 million affordable housing um, spaces. And in Delaware, for every 100 families slash individuals that need affordable housing, only, only about 24 units exist. Right, and so that's what we should be focusing our attention on are these systems and structures of inequity and of violence that then lead to these outcomes that seem very individual, but they are, they are not, right? And that's something um, we are trying to also do here in Delaware through the Homes Campaign, as you mentioned, that's one of the organizations I've been working with. So Homes stands for housing, opportunity, mobility, equity, and stability. And um, one of our tasks right now, or I should say one of our um, goals is to really create more awareness because many times people feel that it is their fault, right? Because again, this is the narrative that we've all been fed. And so if I feel like I, me not being able to pay my rent is my fault, then I'm less likely to work with other people to advocate for this structural change, which is really what we need. And not that there aren't some people out there, right, that would just love a free home. I mean, who wouldn't? But most people, um, in particular, poor black and brown people would prefer to have a good paying job. Um, the dignity that comes with that, right? We often don't think about the ways in which we dehumanize um, folks when we make these very negative blanket comments, um, we aren't taking into account, right, that person's motivation and desire to care for their family, right, to feel proud that they do have a job that pays them enough to pay their rent and to feed their children and to actually spend time with them, right? Um, again, research shows that people have to work, you know, 80, 100 hours a week just to make what's needed. And how do you do that when you're only one person and, and you likely have a family? It, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated issue, um, but I guess the, the short answer, right, or uh, just to wrap that up is we have to understand these larger systems and structures that negatively impact the experiences and outcomes for our young people and their families. Um, and so as teachers, right, as principals, um, 
one, we need to have our own awareness, but then we also need to be advocates, right? Um, I say this a lot to my students in human development, right? Who, um, family sciences who will go into human services. Yes, we need to provide that direct service in order to meet that individual or family's immediate need. But if we aren't addressing these larger systems and structures, then we're always going to be working in crisis. We're always gonna be trying to figure out how do we meet these needs because we haven't addressed, right? The inequity of race, the inequity of economics, right? The fact that most of our, um, again, as a society, we are, we are focused on, right? Capital and not people, right? And so that is a big piece also of homes is, Housing is a human right, right? Housing is not just a commodity. Housing is someone's right because we know that with that stability becomes much better outcomes, educationally, health-wise, job-wise, um, just your well-being. It, it impacts every facet of life. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise on this critically important issue with us and with our audience and, and for taking your time to, to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So you can learn more about Dr. Avila's work from her book, uh, From Charity to Equity, Race, Homelessness, and Urban Schools, as well as through some resources that we're going to link to the Evidence for Education podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence for Education, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. We hope you join us for our next episode, featuring Dr. Adrian Pasquarella, and a discussion of how we support culturally and linguistically diverse students here in Delaware. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu forward slash PPE.